0: Hi everybody, welcome uh, to what I hope will be a more technically successful uh, class session than we had last night. For those of you who attempted to attend last night, I apologize for that. I believe the culprit uh, was my internet service provider, which seems to have been flaming out off and on during my broadcast last night, which is why my audio uh, kept cutting out and I believe why my webcam wouldn't come through because I wasn't getting the connection. Um, So anyway... Um, My apologies for uh, the flaking out of my uh, internet connection last night. I certainly hope that won't happen again. Um, But we seem to be doing a little bit better here today. So, um, last night I did not get through a lot of what I wanted to get through because uh, I was delayed and then distracted by the... uh, challenges that we had. I did, however, get a clean recording of the whole thing, so uh, that will be... Um, I haven't been able to post that yet. I'm going to post that this evening. Um, so if you even if you attempted to uh, uh, attend, you can still catch up on bits that uh, ended up becoming rather elusive and mysterious during class last night. So anyway, onwards and upwards. So... Um, I wanted to t- two things. I mainly wanted to go back and cover that we that I either didn't get to or deliberately skipped over in earlier sessions uh, since our last uh, uh, since our last bonus session, and that is the Kyrian and Aoral chapter, which we totally didn't get to last night, and then the uh, the stuff about Thranduil that I mentioned before. Um, and I'm gonna. I want to do them in that order. Um, so essentially, where I'm gonna pick up right now is where I kind of left off last night. Um, one last point I want to make about the uh, Isildur story about the disaster of the Gladden Fields before we move on to Aoral, because I think it's also relevant to that second story, and it, it has to do with the initial question that I was asking at the beginning of last night's class, which is, what are these stories doing? What 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 is this always sounds very crude to put it this way but what is the point of these stories exactly what are what are what do these stories accomplish um, and one thing that i was certainly trying to suggest last night is when we look at the disaster of the gladden fields we can see Um, especially when we compare it closely as we were last night with the earlier things that we learned about Isildur in the Silmarillion and the Fellowship of the Ring in particular, um, we can see that Tolkien was significantly reshaping Isildur. This version of the story, whether you think of it as Tolkien rethinking this and wanting to put uh, Isildur in a different light uh, later on in his life, or whether you think of it from within the framework of the story and say this is a a later version of the uh, story which is built upon new evidence that has come to light which has, you know, changed the way that that uh, you know Gondorian historians, um, uh, you know, are now think of the end of of Isildur, whichever way you want to say it, it's definitely a new view, and it prompts us to see Isildur very differently than I think we are prompted to do so in the versions of the story that we get earlier on. But there are also some kind of larger questions. One thing that I think that we can see happening here, the references to Isildur that we get, especially during the text of the Lord of the Rings, are, I mean, he comes up, you know, several times. It's not like he's an obscure character or something. Um, but he's a legendary figure. We don't really get the full story of him. I think the closest we get to getting a story of Isildur is when we get his words, when Gandalf reads from his scroll. Um... And uh, uh, you know, and there at least we're sort of hearing Isildur's voice, and that gives us a little bit of a window into him and what was going on with him and everything. But in general, we don't get story; we get legend. And I think there was there was one m- moment in the disaster of the Gladden Fields chapter that really jumped out at me um, as uh, a moment where I think we can see Tolkien doing something important um, to uh, to to the story. It, it gives, I think, some insight into what's going on there. So let's look at. This is one of his footnotes. Uh, Neil was commenting last night, uh, and by email, about the enormous weight of footnotes that both of these chapters have. Um, uh, uh, Kyrian and Aoral unexpectedly beats the um, uh, <laughs> the Isildur story for a number of footnotes, or endnotes rather. Um, but here's the note on Oktar, the name of the Esquire. Okay, Oktar is the only name used in the legends, but it is probably only the title of address that Isildur used at that tragic moment, hiding his feelings under formality. Oktar, warrior, soldier, was the title of all who, though fully trained and experienced, had not yet been admitted to the rank of Roquin, knight. But Oktar was dear to Isildur, and of his own kin. Okay, so, so we see what just happened here. So, Akhtar, o- of course, is the esquire who flees with the shards of Narsil, and he's alluded to uh, by Elrond in the Council of Elrond as, you know, bearing the shards of the sword that was broken up to uh, Imladris, and that's how they survived. Now, um, the name Akhtar, as Tolkien tells us here, is not, he says here it's not really his name. It is presented as his name, right? Every time we have heard about that, we're told Octar is the name of the dude who escaped from uh, from Isildur's army and made it up to uh, Imladris with the um, with the sword. It's how it came down to Velando and ultimately to Aragorn. Octar is the guy's name. Now the name means we're told warrior or soldier. This is fairly common when Tolkien gave people names; they often had a meaning. Of course, uh, you know one of the one of the most uh, uh, s- almost comical examples of this are the names of the kings of Rohan. Um, almost all of the kings of Rohan have names which in Anglo-Saxon mean king. Um, uh, uh, you know, they're often, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, like uh, word, you know, words or names that are used um, uh, um, sort of metaphorically for king. But anyway, I mean, basically, you know, the list of kings... They're all named king. Almost all are named king. Uh, So, you know, Tolkien almost kind of plays with that. You know, he very frequently uses common nouns from a different language as somebody's name. But here he's now taking that detail, which was already in the other version. we We got this guy's name. But he's not just willing to let this sit. It, this is not just a legend anymore, right? This is not just, you know, in one or two sentences we're told that there was a there was an esquire. You know, his esquire, Oktar, escaped with the sword. Now we're actually getting the story, right? And Tolkien apparently feels dissatisfied now with the name Oktar as his name. Um, because... It just means soldier. And when you actually put that name in the mouth of Isildur, right? It's one thing to say in the Chronicles, and his esquire, Oktar escaped with the sword. It's quite another thing to actually come in close to it, put dialogue in the mouth of Isildur where he says, Hey, um, and, you know, Which in his mouth, in his language, just means, Hey, warrior. Tolkien's apparently becomes uncomfortable with that so what does he do he doesn't change the name right he doesn't try to pretend it now means something else instead he invents a story behind why he would call this guy who's probably actually named something else right this this is not his real name right he's known as Akhtar in the legends but but certainly he has it's not what his mom named him you know but 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 whatever um you know that name has come down and that name has possibly come down so basically what we get in the conversation between Isildur and Akhtar when he lays this charge upon him to flee with the sword um, is a moment of sort of formality which Tolkien characterizes here in this footnote as tenderness, right? That he's hiding his feelings under formality. So he's calling him soldier. He's calling him warrior. He's, you know, warrior, take, these, take this sword. Not because he's being impersonal, but because in fact he's being affectionate and he's using he is hiding his feelings under formality in that moment and almost as if to commemorate that moment of tenderness between Isildur and his esquire who was dear to Isildur and of his own kin he says that name warrior soldier has been passed down in the legends as, as if it were the name. It is the way that this guy will be identified in the legends from there on out. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're seeing here is, um, you know, again, I was asking, what do these stories do? You know, what is the, what is the effect of telling the story of the disaster of the Gladden Fields, rather than just giving it as a legend in a chronicle? What is the, what is the effect of telling the story of the ride of Aeorl the Young? Um, and even in, in even more detail of the oath of Kyrian and Aeorl, what is the effect of that? Again, both of those moments, the death of Isildur and the ride of Aeorl, are iconic moments in the legends of the Third Age of Middle-earth. I mean, these are things which get referred back to lots and lots of times. Here he's taking those legends and he's turning. I, I'm I'm using these terms a little bit clumsily, I think, but uh, but I hope you'll understand what I'm what I'm kind of getting at. He's turning the legends into story, right? Um, where we're actually kind of coming close in here. We're getting to see these people to get some glimpse of this to actually come. in... I, I, I keep using the the term to to come in close, and I don't mean it in the sense of like walking up close. I'm thinking of it more in terms of altitude. I used this metaphor at different points in talking about the Silmarillion, as I recall that was a long time ago now. um, I talked this way in the Silmarillion seminar a bunch of times. There are some times when the narrative really flies pretty high overhead and you're looking down and you're seeing a big picture um, and then there are other places where it kind of zooms in, you know, it kind of swoops down and gets much more close um, to the characters, much more close to the events, and describes the detail much more um, you know, much more novelistically, much more close in. That's, I think, what, what we're getting here. It's not just that we're getting more detail. It's not merely a longer account that contains more information. It's a different kind of story. Um, there's a change in quality as well as a change in quantity. Um, Sandra, I think that's a really good way of saying it. Sandra says, by turning the legends into story, he humanizes the characters and emotions from the heights of legends uh, of legend to everyday life. And of course, conversely, in effect, Sandra, by, uh, by turning Isildur, um, well, I won't say from turning him into, he remains an, uh, an epic, heroic, legendary figure but by also giving us a glimpse of Isildur's human side, by making him the character in his story um, so that we can see what he was thinking, what he was feeling. Um, and, uh, you know, we we can really immerse ourselves in his point of view, in this situation, in a much more direct and, and, and powerful way. Um, it does serve to humanize him. But I think there's, there's a way Sandra... The danger, of course, in doing this is that you you reduce the legend, right? That having seen this, we're never going to really be able to look at the legends of Isildur in the same way. Remember, uh, in the very first discussion we had about Unfinished Tales when we were looking at the comments that Tolkien made and I talked about this uh, also a good deal when we were talking about the appendices uh, of the Return of the King um, that Tolkien recognized that there are some people who aren't going to be interested in this kind of thing right? Who, who would rather that the remote tales remain remote, they would rather that those legendary figures remain legendary and not to learn more about them um, but uh, and 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 again, so uh, because there is a danger, right? There is a danger that you know those references to Isildur, the way that he kind of looms in the background behind Boromir and behind Aragorn in uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring, especially, um, is something that will change. I think you know it, it's it may well impact that. It might not have the same power. Um, that is, sort of the myth of Isildur might not have exactly the same power once it's been turned into story, once he's been humanized in this way. Um, but I kind you know, for myself, uh, you know, and, and maybe in, in some ways it's a personal taste, um, I think that this adds more than it subtracts. And what's more, I think that there is a way in which it, it kind of, by bringing us closer to the legends... Um, But not tearing them down. Isildur, I don't think less of Isildur, I think more of Isildur after reading this story. Um, And uh, I I think that there are are ways that he sort of makes it more powerful. What he's doing, he's giving up some of that distance, some of that remoteness of these legends. That is being sacrificed in telling this story. But what we're getting is a much richer imaginative experience um, to be able to have you know those 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 distant gigantic figures, and here you know sort of like the figures of the Argonaut kind of uh, uh, in some ways I think really influence my imagination of Isildur and anarian especially but um, but uh, you know these 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 you know titanic historic figures uh, way back in the misty path. Uh, past rather by sort of clearing away some of that mist and helping us see clearly what Isildur was like what his world was like um you know so many more details about what he uh what his world was 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 involved in um- again I don't think that I've lost nearly as much as I've gained um in that um in that in that transaction um yeah yeah um let's see uh so I'm just looking at a couple uh, extra comments here. Um, yeah, Sandra says that's why Christopher Tolkien and uh, Tolkien himself were uncertain if, uh, e- even if the Silmarillion should be published, as the vistas glimpsed in The Lord of the Rings could become less powerful uh, if the actual events were known. I, I I agree. Now, of course, Tolkien always wanted the Silmarillion published, um, but but there is that trade-off. You know, there is that that kind of uncertainty. Um, the comparison. Uh, the comparison of. Theoden to Orme the Great as he charges onto the Battle of Pelennor Field has a very different kind of impact when you have no idea who Orame the Great was. Um, and you gain much in knowing who Orame was, but something is lost, too. Now, for myself, I think... The very different effect that it has when we know that is, for me, for me outweighs uh, the other. I I, uh, um, I would make that trade every time, but but it's it's certainly something to be aware of because I do think that this is one of the things that is really happening in this story. This seems to me one of the central interests of it um, and uh, in this light I wanted to point out uh, uh, Jana, you made this uh, observation which I think is a really good one and really kind of uh, points to a prime example of one of the things that I was thinking of. Again, this, is, this relates not only to uh, um, uh, to the di- the disaster of the Gladden Fields, but also to the Curian and aoral stuff. Isildur commanded a thungale to be drawn up, a shield wall of two serried ranks that could be bent back at either end if outflanked, until at need it became a closed ring. Uh, by the way, funny side note. Um... Uh, Microsoft, in its wisdom, wanted, uh, through its spell checker, to, cre- to correct Thangyle to Hangnail. Um, they're almost the same, really. Uh, if the land had been flat, or the slope in his favor, he would have formed his company into a knife and charged the orcs, hoping by the great strength of the Dunedain and their weapons to cleave a way through them, and scatter them in dismay. But that could not now be done. No such detailed description, this is Yana now speaking, no such detailed description of battle formation and tactics is to be found in any of Tolkien's main canon. The closest thing might be the description of the charge of the Rohirrim against the orcs that have captured Merry and Pippin. Was this really meant to be published in story form, or are they more a set of notes for Tolkien himself? Uh, Yana, I, I mean, as several people have noticed, you know, Kate was just observing before, that the footnotes in these two chapters significantly outweigh the actual text. Um, uh, and that seems to be characteristic of some of these kinds of stories. Now, so I think there are a couple things that are going on there. One is Tolkien really liked this kind of thing. That is, he really liked filling in this kind of detail. He really liked imagining these things. That's why we you know, the the same thing that led him when working on the appendices of the Lord of the Ring to write that whole thing about calendars and the comparative calendar systems of the Dunedain and the Eldar and everybody else and the Shire. um, The same thing that impelled him to write that appendix uh, is impelling him to write the stuff about the Numenorean measures and how many uh, you know how many miles per day the the Numenorians would march on the average day. You know all that kind of stuff. <coughs> so there's um, uh, to to some extent this is you know remember again that that letter that I talked about when we were discussing the appendices where Tolkien confessed that he finds the attraction of that kind of just just developing lore. Uh, for this world, Um, you know, to be a a kind of a game which he found almost too fatally attractive, as he said. Um, He just really liked that kind of thing. So, you know, that's, I think, one thing behind it. But, But more, why? you know, why does he like this? Why does he? Well, because, you know, what makes Tolkien's world so satisfying imaginatively is that he he makes it so easy through a lot of these details by working everything out in these ways. Um, it's one of the things that contributes to make Middle Earth one of the most satisfying secondary worlds ever created. It's why so many people love to invest themselves imaginatively in Tolkien's world. And, Although it might seem some of the footnotes uh, in uh, these two chapters might seem, uh, especially the, the, uh, the Gladden Fields, might seem a little bit pedantic. Like, you know, you might be sitting there saying, this is a little more information than I really needed. Um, but nevertheless, um, they amount to something. You know, that is to say, if you, if you kind of absorb them, what we get here is something we never get anywhere else. I mean nowhere else that I know of in all of Tolkien's writing do we get this kind of glimpse into life in late Numenor and early Gondor. You know, the sense of how they marched and how they equipped themselves and, you know, what their armor was like and what their tactics were like and how he commanded them and the the the, the glimpses of their culture, the glimpses of their mindsets, uh, the glimpses of their technology that these things give us, help us to, help me anyway, to kind of populate that world imaginatively in ways that I I wouldn't have anywhere else. Um, Numenor, if you just read The Lord of the Rings, Numenor is largely... An empty box. I mean, we get some references. I mean, we know that it fell, and we, you know, we we know some things about it. But especially given the significance that it has in the history of Middle Earth, as we learn about it in the Lord of the Rings, for all that we know very little about it, um, and it's one of the reasons I really like the Second Age stuff in uh, in Unfinished Tales is that I and I really enjoy the description of Numenor as we talked about a couple weeks back. Um. But, um, but anyway, I, I you know, I, I think that here, I have come to enjoy these details about the Numenorians more and more. And, and it's, it's very unusual. I don't know. I, I, Jan, I was glad you pointed out the, uh, the, the battle tactics stuff. We very rarely get a glimpse of that. In fact, it's one of the things which is to me kind of striking, actually. Um, and in one of my Tolkien chats a while back when we talked about Tolkien in military history with David Perlmutter, um, we were commenting on the fact that Tolkien's description of battles, for all that his description of battles are rightly celebrated and, and, and that many, many readers have found them deeply moving, uh, in the course of them he shows very little interest, or I would say... Um, small, not no interest, but small interest in military tactics. Um, there are some battles that you, I mean, you read the battles in George R. R. Martin and you will learn much about tactics. Those, you know, the the, the, the battles in Westeros are very interested in battlefield tactics. Um, the, the battles in Tolkien are not very interested in battle tactics. Um, they're extremely simply um, uh, described. This is a different world. This is something, but you know what? Even that itself, even that difference, to me becomes part of the experience. Then, because it gives me a glimpse of, of the, you know the 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 way that they travel, how standardized and regularized everything was. It s- seems to me very Roman, very much like the ancient Roman army, um, and uh, even down to their you know their defensive short swords and their um, their. Individual wallets of emergency rations and everything else, Um, but anyhow, um, the uh, the the way in which they had the whole thing worked out to a system, you know, their whole vocabulary and the 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 um, the easy detail, you know, the way that this was this was this was just a part of life for them. Why, if you're going to come down in close and tell this story of a Numenorian battle, you've got to. You've got to go here. You know, you can't just do a say it in charging from the gates of the Hornburg kind of description of this battle, because that's not—at least this is what I, I take from this story. It's not how Numenorians would have thought. It's not how Isildur would have thought. Um, so that in itself, the very presence of these details, to me, suggests something not about Tolkien prim- primarily, but about the Numenorians actually. And I think um, that it's really cool um, how he. How he does this um, uh, now, Brent again is reminding me, and I think it's, this is it's important to emphasize this. I don't want to lose that. Um, Brent says Tolkien also said that he should leave some mystery in the story. I think uh, he he's saying. I think I said he thinks I said this uh, in my perception of depth talk not long ago. How do we balance this? Why mystery in some places and the filling out of details in others? Um, it's a it's a difficult balance, and the thing that I think is. The thing that I think makes it work in Tolkien that I'd never find—that the extra stuff we learn in Unfinished Tales, the extra stuff we learn um, in the history of Middle Earth, and 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 stuff like that—it never, to me, robs it of mystery. Um, it's not like the more we learn, we're just going to get down to we're you know we're we're gonna we're gonna. Get down to the bottom of the bucket. This reminds me. Christopher Tolkien addressed this in his introduction to *Book of Lost Tales* Volume One. That is, at the beginning of setting out to do the history of Middle Earth, um, he talked about um, he talked about uh, this exact question that, like, if you know, people uh, actually read this, you know, if if the story of the history of Middle Earth goes all the way back to creation. Then you know there's there's not going to be anything behind it, right? We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna hit the the wall, you know the the rear wall of that that sort of mystery of that depth. We're gonna we're gonna be striking the bottom, and then it's going to be cheaper. It's going to seem like a small contained thing. Um, to me, the reason that that never happens. Is that there's still, there's so much more. Like no matter how much detail we get, there's always so much stuff that we still don't know. There are still so many untold stories. In fact, even in t- I mean, giving this as an example, this one little flash of Numenorean military life that we're given in this um, makes for me uh, the imagination. You know, for me, then imagining. All of the other Numenorean battles that we're describing, imagining the armament of our ferizan uh, that landed in Valinor, imagining uh, the, the the Numenorean army which landed um, yeah, in Eriador to to drive Sauron away, um, you know, and 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 took Sauron from behind um, in his war in the Second Age, um, <coughs> imagining what the Battle of Dagorlad must have been like. Now. I have more stuff, so you can say there's less mystery, right? Um, but it's there's still so much now. It, it, it gives me so much more foundation from which to imagine, you know, that now it's like being able to move a step forward, even a large leap forward, I can now imagine so much more, you know, that yeah, there's still a lot that's in the mystery, you know, there's still there's still a lot that's sort of clouded by that mist but I can now see more of that, you know? Um, so, I don't know. But, but Brent, I do recognize that there is a balance there, and Tolkien himself recognized that for some people none of this stuff was going to be really, um, really, uh, really uh, helpful. Um, Charlie uh, Conover says, The marching pace of the Dunedain in haste puts Stonewall Jackson's foot cavalry to shame. Uh, yeah, yeah, you put... Uh, now, um... In their defense, the Numenorians probably had about—I uh, uh, don't know what—a foot maybe on average uh, over uh, the Confederate uh, soldiers, so they would have had a longer stride and been able to cover more. But, but yeah, absolutely, uh, Charlie. The more you know about. Um, you know, historical. You know, the movement of the Roman army. You know, the movement of uh, of of armies in the Civil War and things like that. Uh, the more impressive uh, are the Numenoreans. <laughs> um, so again, it's not like oh well, now he's ruined all the mystery, right? No, it's actually the more the closer you look at them, the the cooler they look actually. Um, anyway, um, let me uh, let me go on because I, we are in fact going to talk about. Curian and Aeurl here. Um, because here we get another. Again, Aearl the Young and the ride of Aerol the Young, this is you know, in in a sense, Aearl is different from Okay, in a sense he's different from Isildur. That's a really it's a really inspired comment, isn't it? Of course he's different from Isildur, but that is the way that he looms as a figure. Um, he is a great legendary hero of old, like Isildur is, but Erol the Young is attached to a particular heroic event in a way that Isildur wasn't. I mean, you know, the battle of the, you know, the disaster of the Gladden Fields was an important moment, of course, but again, there's not like the one mighty act that Isildur um, is fa- is famous for. His own uh, sort of pedigree is a little richer than that. Erol the Young, um, his his arrival at the field of Celebrant and his, uh, uh, you know, his saving of the day in that moment and thereafter as a consequence, the establishment of the kingdom of the Mark is his iconic moment. You know, that is sort of the thing about him. So in some sense to learn more about that moment, um, is to, it would seem again, if we're thinking about ruining mystery, right? Um, you could easily say, oh, no, no, wait, I don't want to hear more about the ride of Aeorl the Young. I want it to remain that kind of mythic moment. I don't want to come any closer to it. But I think that what we see with Tolkien, one of the reasons that we see all of this extra stuff that is not just the stuff about the ride of Aoral and the oaths that follow, but all of that material we get about the Eotheod and their earlier um, interactions with Gondor and the stuff with the Riders and all that stuff... Um, this to me is another example of what seemed to be happening when Tolkien is telling this story that same thing of once you once you move further in to that cloud that 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 historical cloud, what you find is you've gotten yourself to a vantage point where now you can see more uh, and more which is still covered in that same mystery. Um, so anyway. Yana asks if standing on Sauron's neck and cutting the ring off doesn't count uh, no, Yana it doesn't, it doesn't count I mean, I'm not saying that that wasn't a big deal it was kind of a big deal but what I'm saying is, he's not identified with that moment, because he's identified with more um, you know, his role as a legendary figure in the background of the story um, is more complicated than that, because he's involved in more things, it's not that that wasn't a big moment, because it was um, but um but yeah, we don't get we don't get the same. This you know, Aeorl's career is a flashbulb, right? I mean, his the scene which is depicted, you know, uh, when we see his his image there in Meadowceld when we go there for the first time in the Two Towers, that's the flashbulb moment. That's Aeorl the Young, right? And we know almost nothing else about him. Even in the appendices, we get that one other cool thing, which is the story of how he tamed Felarov, right? Which is which is a really cool little story. Um... But um, uh, but we don't. Uh, but with Isildur, he's not a flashbulb figure, right? Um, there's much more to him. Uh, now Tom asks, Ah, but what if he had thrown the ring into the fire? It's a good question. Um, is his story, in fact, uh, uh, you know, there would have been less story. Maybe he would have been a flashbulb, uh, more of a flashbulb, anyway. Uh, if uh, if if he had done that. Um, anyway, um. okay but let's go on and what i want to do here um the main thing i want to focus on in looking at uh kyrian and aoral is the oath this is something uh, several of you have emailed me about this and i I haven't posted any particular one of them because several people have been asking exactly the same thing and it's an excellent question um how uneasy should we be About this oath. Careful readers of the Silmarillion will remember that oaths usually tend to come back and bite you when you make them. So, um, you know, it seems that one take-home message from the Silmarillion is you probably shouldn't swear oaths really under any circumstances. Um... Because you can't even, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to say, oh, well, the Oath of Fanor was a bad oath, right? I mean, the, his motivations behind it were really ugly, and the terms of the oath are really shady. And so, you know, the fact that that's, um, the fact that that is, uh, 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 you know, that, does not, that doesn't turn out well is no surprise. But remember, um, you know, when Finrod swears his oath of friendship with Barahir, that seems like a good thing, right? He just swears to him an oath of friendship in every need, for him and for his heirs, in gratitude for him saving his life. That's not a fanorian type oath, right? But Finrod, reflecting back on that when Baron comes to him, uh, refers to him to them being ensnared. By their oaths, and he is included. He is ensnared by his own oath. Even that one, which I would point to, at least off the top of my head, that seems to be the most, you know, good, benevolent, um, uh, you know, it seems to be the, the most light and happy oath that anybody swears in the Silmarillion. But even that one. Um, gets into trouble. Yana points out, and again, uh, several people made this observation in the course of asking about this, Um, Elrond does seem to be leery of oaths in general. There's that sense, you know, when they're leaving Rivendell and Gimli's like, hey, I know, let's swear an oath. And and Elrond is like, "Mm, no, 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 bad idea. It seems like, you know, Elrond's like, dude, have you even read The Silmarillion? Like, that is such a bad idea, let us not swear an oath. (coughs) Um, So again, it's like Elrond has learned that lesson. So what then do we make of the oath of Aeorl? Here we have an oath which would seem to be a totally good and fine oath. So let's look at the circumstances of this. How do we understand this? How does how does this story um seem to invite us to understand because it's, it's 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 a little fascinating that this moment would be the one that uh, that that we get really kind of zoomed in with. The Oath of Aeorl, um, you know, I mentioned how the ride of Aeorl and his arrival at Celebrant is kind of the flashbulb moment of fame for Aeorl in the Lord of the Rings, you know, as his legendary figure is is, is discussed, but um, you know, the Oath of Aeorl is alluded to lots of times, you know, that is the, you know, the, it, is the, it is the bedrock of the relationship between Rohan and Gondor and of course comes in for a lot of discussion. Um, so let's, let's look at this. Let's look at how this works. First, first, the setup. The location is made rather a big deal of, right? That they're going to go to the tomb of Elendil. Um, here's, a, here's a description before Kyrian goes up there. The beacon wardens were the only inhabitants of the wood, save wild beasts. They housed in lodges in the trees near the summit, but they did not stay long unless held there by foul weather, and they came and went in turns of duty. For the most part, they were glad to return home, not because of the peril of the wild beasts nor did any evil shadow out of dark day slime upon the wood little note on this hang on a second i'll come back to this but beneath the sounds of the winds the cries of birds and beasts or at times the noise of horsemen riding in haste upon the road there lay a silence there lay a silence and a man would find himself speaking to his comrades in a whisper as if he expected to hear the echo of a great voice that called from far away and long ago the name Halifirian meant in the language of the Rohirrim, Holy Mountain. Before their coming, it was known in Sindarin as Amon Anwar, Hill of Awe. For what reason was not known in Gondor, except only, as later appeared, to the ruling king or steward? For the few men who ever ventured to leave the road and wander under the trees of the wood itself seemed reason enough. In the common speech, it was called the Whispering Wood. Um, uh, Note a uh, 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 really small note there, which is actually sort of a fun textual moment. Sometimes people ask I left that on purpose, um, the business about slime there. Sometimes people will say, um, you know, what's the difference between different editions of Tolkien? There are differences. That reading um, uh, here, uh, evil shadow out of dark day, slime upon the wood. That is what this edition of the Unfinished Tales says. That is exactly how it appears in this, in the paperback Ballantine edition. If you look in the hardcover edition, you will find that the actual, that is, it seems, an error. The reading in this edition of the text is evil shadow out of dark days lie upon the wood. Nor did any evil shadow out of dark days, plural, lie upon the wood. What seems to have happened when they set the text for this edition is that a space was accidentally inserted between the Y and the S, so it was dark day space S-L-I-E, and that was subsequently corrected to slime. So this text has Evil Shadow out of Dark Days, slime upon the wood. Um, uh, The moral of the story is, not all texts are in fact created equal. Uh, and sometimes it's, uh, the, the, the cheapo paperback versions are not, in fact, the same, and will contain errors. Um, a little cautionary tale there, uh, to, um, uh, to sort of, uh, uh, just sort of throw out there. Anyhow, there's no peril, there's no evil shadow, but these woods are really creepy. Uh, it is called the, 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 uh, the Hill of Awe. I'm an Anwar. I really like that. The Hill of Awe. Um, Nancy uh, Forsberg, is, uh, er, Forsberg is saying the Helliferian reminded her strongly of the Mental Tarma, and there certainly are some similarities. Um, this is a special place. This place is a place that is full of awe and is characterized as holy even before. The oath happens there. So one thing that we get about this, the, and and again, the, this version of you know this this version of the story in this chapter, we get a lot of emphasis on how important this location was, and how it's holy and why it's holy and Curian's deliberate choice to um, his deliberate choice to to hold this little ceremony here at this particular place. Um, so keeping that in mind, we'll, we'll come back to this a little bit when we discuss the uh, the oaths. Let's look at Errol's oath. So here in this hill of awe on the holy mountain, he swears this oath. As I'm reading it, go ahead and write down anything that jumps out to you. Again, especially thinking in the context of other oaths that which have led people into trouble. Is there anything that you see that distinguishes this oath from the others? Hear now, all peoples, who bow not to the shadow in the east. By the gift of the lord of the, M- of the Mundberg, we will come to dwell in the land that he names Kalanar And therefore I vow in my own name and on behalf of the Eotheod of the north, that between us and the great people of the west there shall be friendship forever. Their enemies shall be our enemies, their need shall be our need, and whatsoever evil or threat or assault may come upon them, we will aid them to the utmost end of our strength. This vow shall descend to my heirs, all such as may come after me in our new land, and let them keep it in faith unbroken, lest the shadow fall upon them and they become accursed. Okay. What do you notice? Neil points out uh the all peoples who bow not to the shadow uh nice qualifier that he gives there um uh yes, yes, here now all peoples who bow not to the shadow um this is not something that is uh uh going to be you know it's not it, it's 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 directed only to peoples who aren't under the shadow he's not giving this oath. To Sauron and before Sauron, um, uh, remember the universality of Feanor's oath. Right, that he's you know before I you know he names all of the Valar to witness and uh, and uh, you know it's you know gives that you know the lists of uh, things that he includes to show that there shall be no exceptions under any circumstances. Um, it, It doesn't have any of those kinds of qualifiers in it. Um okay, let's see. Um now, as good as Neil points out, um and I think it's quite striking, another thing you can say is well, this is a benevolent oath, right? Well again, so is Finrod's but um uh but there's a curse in it, right? He does place a curse uh, upon those who would break the oath. Um, or you could say that he's not placing a curse on it, but merely stating that those who break it will be accursed like the you know and um, lest the shadow fall upon them and they become accursed, I think we can't help but think of the oath breakers, of course. Um, yeah, uh, Sarah, it is a little bit different from calling uttermost darkness upon them if they should fail. Um, but it's similar. It's similar uh he does point out that the the consequences of breaking the oath are going to be uh significant it's it's kind of ominous there again they could end up you know they could end up hanging around they they could they could make their own little stone of Iraq and hang out there um you know if uh if uh, if they don't follow the oath um, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, Charlie says the oath of Aeoral makes uh, makes the Peter Jackson movie Theoden's initial whining about why should we have to ride to the aid of Gondor especially distasteful and unkingly. Yes, Charlie and I also, as much as I like the scene in the films before the Rohirrim ride into battle at Pelennor Field, the speech that Theoden makes. I missed the one bit that they left out. You know, oaths you have taken now fulfill them all! To lord and lands! And I, can't, I couldn't help myself, from the first moment I saw the film in the theater to every single time I've seen the film afterwards, I have shouted out, And League of Friendship! to complete the triad that he gives there. Because, of course, Charlie, it's exactly this. It's exactly the oath, the League of Friendship that they have made with Gondor that, uh, that Theoden in the book is reminding them to fulfill. And that just gets, uh, the League of Friendship just gets chucked out. Um. <coughs> anyway... <clears throat> Enough of that. Um, uh, more more. What do we um uh, what do we make of this? It's not like this is an oath that's that one can't imagine um, going bad. you know uh, it's not like, for instance, an oath which would say, like the oath that Gollum originally wanted to make, to swear to be very, very good. That seems like a, a good oath, actually. I think, you know, making the oath to say, I will be very, very good, I was not going to backfire. You know what I mean? Because, you know, if you're not good, if you break the oath, well... You're probably in the same place that you were if you hadn't promised to be very, very good. Um, being very, very good is its own reward. Nobody's going nobody's gonna, to uh, probably be able to manipulate that oath against you. It's easy to imagine circumstances where this kind of an oath of an, of an alliance could come back to bite them. Like Finrod's uh, oath comes back to bite him. Um, and as Sarah points out, promising for people who aren't present or even born doesn't seem quite fair. Yes, all of his descendants are to be bound by this oath as well. So I don't think, looking at his oath, I don't see, I mean, yes, it's a benevolent oath. It's an oath of friendship. It's, you know, uh, uh, it, you know that all, that's there's nothing morally shady. It doesn't send off the Feanorian um, alert signals. But I don't think that this oath is intrinsically different from other oaths that we've seen. Um, uh, If Finrod's oath could be turned against him, this oath could have been turned against them. It hasn't, it didn't um, in any of the times that we saw, but their enemies shall be our enemies. What if Gondor were to declare war against another people that's, that are friendly to the Rohirrim. Then the Rohirrim would be obligated to go to war with their friends because Gondor is being a jerk? That could easily happen, right? Look at Europe, as Ed is pointing out, look at European politics in the 20th century, right? That kind of thing happens, right? Um, uh, their need shall be our need, maybe, but what if they conflict, their needs. That's also possible. And whatsoever evil or threat or assault may come upon them, we will aid them to the utmost end of our strength. What if they need some of the utmost end of their strength for something else? Right? Are they, anyway, it's not like it is impossible to... Um, uh, it's not like it is impossible to... Uh, for this oath to go wrong, for this oath to be misapplied or to put... Uh, uh, the Rohirrim uh, in a place where they might call themselves ensnared by their oath, like Finrod eventually did. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. At least it doesn't happen yet. Um, Let's keep looking. Um, first, the context of the oath uh, is the gift that Kyrian has already declared. This comes before the oath. He's already told them what he's going to do. "'I will now declare what I have resolved with the authority of the stewards of the kings to offer to Eorl, son of Laod, lord of the Eotheod, in recognition of the valor of his people and the help beyond hope that he brought to Gondor in time of dire need.' To Eorl I will give in free gift all the great land of Kalanarthun from Anduin to Isen. There if he will he shall be uh, that should be king, I think it's a typo on my part. There if he will he shall be king, and his heirs after him, and his people shall dwell in freedom while the authority of the stewards endures until the great king returns. No bond shall be laid upon them other than their own laws, and, and will, save this only. They shall live in perpetual friendship with Gondor, and its enemies shall be their enemies while both realms endure. But the same bond shall be laid also on the people of Gondor. Okay, um, oh, is it, Alyssa is pointing out that's another that's another typo in the paperback edition. The paperback actually says that uh, actually says. Um, uh, there, if he will, he shall be kind. And his heirs have to... He can be kind, he can be cruel, whatever you want. Arrow, you want to be a jerk? You can be a jerk. If you want to be kind, you can be kind. No, it's he shall be king, is what it says. Uh, that is the, I believe, corrected reading uh, in the hardcover edition. Um, see, again, you got to be careful. you got to be careful with these, uh, with, uh, with, with these paperbacks. Um, anyway... What do we notice here? The reason I wanted to I wanted to quote this is to show one of the things that makes this situation the oath situation between Gondor and Rohan different from some of the other oath situations that we've seen um, is the pretty remarkable um, the the. The pretty, the pretty remarkable mutuality um, of the relationship between Gondor and Rohan of of what he describes here. No bond shall be laid upon them other than their own laws and will. Save in this only that they will live in perpetual friendship with us, promise to help us, and we in turn will bind ourselves by the same promise towards them. So, and, and this is I. I, I, I I want to make it clear what an unusual thing that is Erol is really struck by this by the by the generosity of the gift and of its terms. It would have been perfectly normal for a king to say, "You can live in this land, but you will be a vassal of mine you know you will be subject to me." Um, that would have been normal, even if he's not a vassal to say you will uh, uh, you will swear obedience to me. Um, Even if he doesn't swear his obedience, but if he says, you will give tribute to me. You'll pay taxes to us. That, again, would be normal. He says, no, none of that. It's completely free, and you will have complete autonomy to establish your own reign. Um, This land, which is ours, we give to you in absolute gift with no strings attached whatsoever. We only ask you to bind yourself in one way and we will bind ourselves to you in exactly that same way. Um, this is the context of the oath, and that seems to me to be an important thing. I'm not saying that this is like the magic thing that differentiates this oath from other oaths, um, but it certainly is one of the things which I think uh, makes the this particular oath-taking situation at least a little bit different, I think. Um, that it's... Um, uh, that it is... <sighs> I, here and his heirs, here, on behalf of his heirs, did not swear a mutual oath back to Finrod. Which is why there's an imbalanced situation there, right? Baron comes to Finrod and says, "Uh, I've got this ring. You swore an oath to my dad, um, and I'm here to collect. There's, Finrod recognizes, he's like, okay, I have to keep that oath now. But in keeping that oath, I'm kind of screwed here. Had Baron or had Barry here sworn a mutual oath, Baron could not even have p that upon Finrod without breaking his own oath. Um, you know, if you have So I mean it's again the way that, that it's entered into, I think does make a big difference. Um uh, Carrowing asks, so when the great king returns, can he nullify this oath and the gift of the land? Yeah, absolutely he could. Um, if he were not Aragorn, <laughs> if he were a jerk, he absolutely could do that. Because Kyrian is recognizing his own authority is limited. His own authority as ruling steward is not absolute. Um, he has all of the authority that currently exists in Gondor, um, but he is not king. So, if the great king were to return, the great king would in fact have the authority to override any declaration made by one of the stewards, which is why um, there is that brief reference in the return of the king to the fact that Aragorn um, reinstates, officially reinstates the gift of Kyrian, and Eor- and uh, um, Aemir officially re-swears the oath of Aeorl to Aragorn. Because the the old oath of Aeoral is no longer doesn't isn't really in force um, in relationship with the king, so I think that that's uh, uh, that is clear. He's recognizing that, but of course there is a sense, as the notes explain, that by this time, until the great king returns, has already become almost a formula. Um, uh, it's almost like until doomsday. Uh, at that point, Kyrian reciprocates the oath. It's not repeated, right? But we're told that he swears also on Gondor's side, just as he in, in, suggests there at the end of this gift passage um, that he will bind himself, he will bind Gondor by the same oath. He reciprocates the oath that uh, uh, that Errol swears, and then he adds to it a rider. This oath shall stand in memory of the glory of the land of the star and of the faith of Elendil the Faithful in the keeping of those who sit upon the thrones of the West, and of the One who is above all thrones forever. Um, this, this is a big deal. He says this, first he says it in Quenya, of course, um, and he says that he did not premeditate this. He planned out the gift thing, he planned out the oath thing, he prepared the location for the ceremony. This he didn't plan. Um, and notice that this is not an oath. This is not a part of the oath. Uh, Feanor named the Valar and Iluvatar himself in witness of his oath. Kyrian is not doing that exactly. Um, he is not saying, I call upon Iluvatar and the Valar, you know, so, to solemnize this oath. He, he declares this. This oath shall stand in the memory of the glory of the land of the star and of the faith of Elendil the Faithful in the keeping of those who sit upon the thrones of the West, and of the one who is above all thrones forever. So first it's a statement of fact. This will stand and what will it stand for? It will stand in memory of the glory of Numenor, the land of the star. Right? Um, As Sarah was pointing out, um, the land of gift, right? Which is Certainly interesting in the context of the gift that he's making to uh, to the Rohirrim here, but in memory of the glory of Numenor and of the faith of Elendil the Faithful, in the keeping of the of the Valar and of Eluvatar who is above all thrones forever. What do you make of this? What do you make of this? This is. Um, thinking, you know, a couple of people were pointing about sort of the the echoes between this place, the Holy Mountain, and the Mental Tarma. Certainly, just the name, the Halifiri, and the Holy Mountain does recall the Mental Tarma. I think, you know, we have reason to be recalling the Mental Tarma um, in that context. It's different because, of course, it's not a place of worship. Uh, certainly not a place of regular annual worship for the, for, the, for the people as a whole, which is what we saw in Numenor at the Mental Tarma. Um... But um, uh, but we have an invoca- a very rare invocation um, of of the one here on this place called the Holy Mountain, um, of the faith of Alendil the Faithful. So two things are being recalled, two principles are being recalled, right? That are being associated with this oath: glory and faith. Right? the glory of the land of the star and the faith of Elendil the faithful. Those are the two things that this oath is to stand in memory of, that this oath is going to be associated with. Um, the glory of Numenor and the faith of who who is called the faithful. I have to admit, I don't really understand how we're supposed to interpret the word faith as it's used here of Elendo. Elendo was called the of the faithful. Um, He certainly, you know, he was the leader of the faithful Numenorians. that is, those who were not the king's men, those who were not turned uh, by Sauron, so he certainly, Elendil is associated with the, you know, his name, the faithful. He seems to be being singled out in that matter. That is, not just that he happened to be one of the faithful or even happened to be the leader of the faithful, but that he was, in his character, faithful, in some sense. I, I would, my initial... Understanding of that would be to mean that it that he is that he keeps his promises. You know that he is somebody who is faithful uh, to his sworn word, who abides by his um, by his promise by his promises. Um, um, I not necessarily faith in the sense of belief. The way that the word faith. Uh, is used. You remember we were talking, uh, uh, if you did the, especially the Two Towers class, also to some extent in the Return of the King class, um, I was talking about faith and the way that we see faith being manifested within the framework of the Lord of the Rings. Um, and... Um, <clears throat> And again, I'm just I'm just not sure. I'm not sure how we're supposed to understand this, um, because this does have I you know Carol and I agree with your comment that this declaration by Kyrian has of it does seem very religious in structure. It does. Um, I almost said amen at the end of it when I just read it. Um, it 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 sounds like it sounds almost like a benediction um, at the conclusion of. Uh, religious observance. The, the parallels, or at least the echo, of the mental tarma that we get here um, uh, you know, I mean, that, that amplifies what that would seem to be. So just simply dismissing faith and faithful here in that sense is really not any, having anything to do uh, with, with, with belief or with anything spiritual. I'm not really just comfortable dismissing those in the context that we're given here, when this is something that's being declared on the Hill of Awe, on the Holy Mountain, especially when Kyrian points out that these are words that are put in his mouth in this moment, that he had not premeditated. These words are just laid upon his heart as if he were inspired um, by someone outside to say these things. and again, the effect of that, the consequence of that, that, this w- that these were, in a sense, not his own words, that this is not Kyrian's sentiment, if we're to believe Kyrian, uh, that this is not his sentiment, but rather this is the sentiment of some other power that put these words in his mouth. Um, it is, in a sense, not Kyrian solemnizing the oath, but somebody else kind of ratifying it. Again, it's... Um, I said it was a declaration... But it's not just a present tense declaration. It talks about the future. Um, You could almost, in one sense, call this statement a prophecy. This oath shall stand in memory of the glory of the land of the star and the faith of Elendil the faithful. When people, in the future, when people think about the oath of Eorl, they are going to be put in mind of the glory of Numenor and the faith of Elendil. That is the kind of category. um, That is the... um, that is the that that is the sort of legendary company that this oath is going to keep in future years. Um, this oath shall also stand in the keeping of the Valar and of Aluvatar. Again, this is not Kyrian calling upon Eluvitar to bear witness to his words like Feanor did, um, presumptuously, but rather, again, if you take it in that sense, if you if you re- if you place emphasis on the shall there. It does sound more like prophecy. So that what this becomes is an indication, almost a promise, that this oath is going to be blessed. That this oath is going to work out. It's not going to be a snare. It's going to be a blessing. Why? Because it's going. it shall stand in the keeping of those who sit on the thrones of the West and of the one who is above all thrones forever. Since they, it will be in their keeping, it's going to work out. And it's going to work out well. Um... Anyway, um, yes, Tom, I agree. At the very least, we can we can put... And I think, you know, Tom, uh, I'll just read Tom's comment. Tom says, Elendil is the paragon of loyalty as the leader of those who remain faithful to the Valar. Uh, that, that faith, as in, he kept faith. Yes, but of course, when you're keeping faith with the Valar and, you know, uh, through them and above them to Iluvatar himself... This also becomes a spiritual and religious thing um, as well. Um, there was certainly of an element of faith that is of belief in the faithfulness of the faithful in Numenor. Um, they were faithful in you know one basic sense in turn in in the sense of loyalty, but this was also a. a, a a question of faith for them in a larger sense, as is made manifest by the temple, you know, the neglecting of the rites of the Menaltarma and the temple to Sauron, you know, to Melkor that is built, um, you know, with Sauron as its high priest in the middle of Numenor later on. Um, so, anyway, um, th- this sentence, this moment, is the one that I found sort of most fascinating and tantalizing uh, in, this, uh, in this chapter. Um, we are threatening to run out of time, so let me look at two other things uh, quickly. Um, One, um, going back to the ride of Aorl the Young, um, uh, Yana makes another good observation. It was then the 25th day of Sulame. Eorl took counsel with himself in silence, but not for long. Soon he rose, and he said, I will come. If the Moonberg falls, whither shall we flee from the darkness? Then he took Borondir's hand in token of his promise. Eorl at once summoned his council of elders and began to prepare for the great riding. but this took many days for the host had to be gathered and mustered and thought taken for the ordering of the people in the defense of the land. Yana uh, here says, this is of course a deliberate and masterful parallel with the riding of Theoden, another example of Tolkien's typology. Um, yes, in a sense, though of course this Typology is, in a sense, working backwards, right? Um, in many places in The Lord of the Rings, we get echoes of other stories and earlier stories. Um, here, we're, by coming to the Aoral story later on, um, you know, we're talking about the effect of telling the Isildur story and how that impacts earlier on. Well, here, um, it has a really kind of a fascinating Relationship with the writing of Theoden, because Theoden's writing already in within the story of the Lord of the Rings, the writing, the, ri- uh, the the ride of Theoden to Minas Tirith uh, in the Return of the King recalls the ride of Arrol, the young, um, you know, bringing help beyond hope and all that. So, I mean, you know, the parallel is pretty well established in the Lord of the Rings itself, um, and that legendary figure of of the Young riding into battle, looming in the background, you know, with that, uh, you know, with that distance and mystery that it has, lends a kind of mythic power to Theoden's ride. Well, now it's been a couple decades since the Lord of the Rings, so what do we get? Well, not a couple decades, but a decade. Um, what do we get? The reverse, right now, the ride of Theoden is lending mythic force. <laughs> to the ride of Aeorl when we come to meet it. It's, we're like, we've got like the typology working in reverse as he goes backwards and tells the story of the riding of aorl the Young. And I find, this, uh, I find the interrelationship of these things uh, really fascinating. Here's another, uh, another interesting typological moment, which uh, works in a similar kind of way, though it's a much less major figure. Here the text abruptly breaks off, and the notes and jottings for its continuation are for the most part illegible. It is possible to make out, however, that men of the Eotheod fought with Ondaher, and also that Ondaher's second son, Faramir, was ordered to remain in Minas Tirith as regent, for it was not permitted by the law that both his sons should go into battle at the same time. A similar observation is made earlier in the narrative. But Faramir did not do so. He went to the war in disguise, and was slain. The writing is here almost impossible to decipher, but it seems that Faramir joined the Eotheod and was caught with a party of them as they retreated towards the dead marshes. The leader of the Eotheod, whose name is indecipherable after the first element Mar, came to their rescue, but Faramir died in his arms, and it was only when he searched his body that he found tokens that showed that he was the prince. The leader of the Eotheod then went to join Mino... Minoctar, at, uh, at the at the head of the north road in Athelion, who at that very moment was giving an order for a message to be taken to the prince in Minas Tirith, who was now the king it was then that the leader of the Eotheod gave him the news that the prince had gone disguised to the battle and had been slain so so first of all, if you can get over how adorable it is that the guy whom Faramir is named after pulled an Ao in, in his in his life, right? That he disguised himself and rode and uh, rode in disguise with the Iothaiad, you know, with the uh, with with the riders. Um, we don't know that he went seeking death. We have no reason to think that he was in despair. Uh, but he didn't want to be left at home uh, with the uh, to, to be to be a regent. Uh, he. Didn't want to stay at home and to keep the house. He wanted to go and earn glory uh, in battle. Um, that's really kind of delightful. But again, remember, remember the way that it, the direction that things are going here. We're, we're learning about history, right? The history of Middle-earth. We're learning about things in the ancient past that lie behind the Faramir that we know and the Eowyn that we know. So the 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 sort of typology, the fulfillment, you know, the, the, these repeated echoes, you know, Eowyn is an echo of Old Faramir, not the other way around. Except in twentieth-century chronology, it is in fact the other way around. The story of Eowyn, uh and of uh, the Faramir that we know and love um, precedes the story of this Faramir. Um So it's just it's 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 really interesting to see the way that the that the the the. Typology kind of works here, and when you put the you know these echoes sort of draw the stories together, um, and when we when we bring them together, when we it, when we sort of follow what I think is kind of the uh, um, the the cue of these texts and put them together. I mean, if you can't help but think of Eowyn when you read this passage, well, don't don't try to help it. Right, take this passage and then go back to Eowyn's words. How does this inform how we read Eowyn? Go back. Read this. Now go back and read that discussion between... The, the give and take between Eowyn and Aragorn before he goes to the Paths of the Dead. Go back and look at Eowyn's words in the Houses of the Healing and her conversations with Faramir. Right? Um, do those look a little different now? I think they might look a little different now than they did before. Um, so, uh, I, I, as indeed um this story, we can't help but, um, wonder. Um, you know, like I said, we don't don't learn anything about Faramir's motivations. We just learn that he went. Um, how, you know, certainly my wondering about his motivations are enhanced by the parallels, uh, with Eowyn here. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, let me move on quickly. One last detail I want to talk about here about Aow, uh, um, not not Eowyn, about Aeorl. Uh, the description of his <clears throat> close encounter uh, with the Lady of the Golden Wood. For when at last the host drew near to Dalguldur, Aeorl turned away westward for fear of the dark shadow and cloud that flowed out from it, and then he rode on within sight of Anduin. Many of the riders turned their eyes thither, half in fear and half in hope, to glimpse from afar the shimmer of the Dwimerdean, the perilous land that in legends of their people was said to shine like gold in the springtime. But now it seemed shrouded in a gleaming mist, and to their dismay the mist passed over the river and flowed over the land before them. Eorl did not halt. Ride on, he commanded. There is no other way to take. After so long a road shall we be held back from battle by a river-mist?" As they drew nearer, they saw that the white mist was driving back the glooms of Dol Guldur, and soon they passed into it, riding slowly at first and warily. But under its canopy all things were lit with a clear and shadowless light, while to left and right they were guarded, as it were, by white walls of secrecy. "'The Lady of the Golden Wood is on our side, it seems,' said Borondir. "'Maybe,' said Eorol, "'but at least I will trust the wisdom of Phalaroth.' He senses no evil. His heart is high, and his weariness is healed. He strains to be given his head. So be it, for never have I had more need of secrecy and speed. A couple things that I would say about this. Again, we get a detail which we never knew about the... uh, ride of Erol the Young, right? That detail about the the way that that shadow is flowing out of Dol Guldur, gosh, that sounds familiar, right? Um, uh, so this gloom is trying, is uh, I- uh, is being sent out perhaps, probably to uh, um, to trouble the ride of, uh, of the Eotheod, to prevent them from arriving in time to save Gondor. Um, here it is being combated, right? There are some significant differences. Uh, I, don't, we, I don't have time to do it, sort of a detailed comparison and contrast, but again, I invite you, put this passage next to what happens, uh, next to what we see in The Return of the King, next to Theoden's ride. Um, you know, the interesting shift in replacing Galadriel with Khan Buri Khan, right? Um, it follows one of the patterns that we see in these typological moments in Tolkien, um, uh, of how when these when these echoes recur again later on, they tend to be lesser, they tend to be diminished. Um, the intervention on the behalf of the Rohirrim is less dramatic than it was on behalf of Errol the Young back in the day. Um, Brianna, yes, this certainly does add more to A. Amir's comments about Galadriel, though, again, we have to remember, it's not... Um, what li- what lay behind those comments? It it, it it when we are looking at it, instead of looking along, instead of looking along it, we need to remember that it's inspired by them, not uh, lying behind them. This comes much later than those things. Um, one other really small observation that I would um, that I would make here is the role that Goadriel plays. This seems to me like a tiny taste of what the Silmarillion would have looked like had Goadriel three uh, uh, worked out. You know, had that come into play. Um, I remember, I you know, in in the Goadriel class when I was talking about that, Goadriel three was the one where he went back and not just inserted Goadriel inserting Goadriel into the uh, into the Silmarillion story, but not having her play a major role, just have her kind of disappear into the stream of story that is the Silmarillion as indeed she is in the published text that's the Galadriel 2.0 Galadriel 3.0 was when he went back and said no actually she was she was like the anti-Fanor she was like second greatest only to Fanor and maybe not even as as uh, much you know below him she was this huge major player who was uh, you know greater and more powerful than Fingolfin and and Turgon and everybody else um, that version of Galadriel could not have gone through life in the First Age without having an impact on it, um, without really changing the story. Um, But... uh, uh, So anyway, it's... uh, um, When we're looking back at the history of the Third Age, now, after this, you know, after we've had some of these later Galadriel reconsiderations, even in the Third Age history we have now an intervention of Galadriel where there had been no hint of that before. Um, Because, of course, Galadriel would. uh, Galadriel, as we later come to understand her, would have intervened. um, Would have helped out. Would have been on top of that. Uh, And so we we see her doing that. Um... A couple last comments I want to make before I let you go, uh, as uh, we're out of time soon. And I've been putting off talking about Thranduil, but by golly, I want to make sure I get to it. So uh, so let me go ahead and, and, and rush ahead to that. Two passages that really jumped out at me um, about Thranduil here. Um, this is back at the end of the, the, the Galadriel and Celeborn chapter. But there was in Thranduil's heart a still deeper shadow. This is after his return uh, from the Battle of the Dagorlad, he had seen the horror of Mordor and could not forget it. If ever he looked south, its memory dimmed the light of the sun, and although he knew that it was now broken and deserted and under the vigilance of the kings of men, fear spoke in his heart that it was not conquered forever, it would arise again. Gosh, so if his heart was really fearful that the shadow was not conquered, this shadow that absolutely terrified him, wasn't conquered and would rise again. You could really kind of imagine him really flipping out and acting a bit irrationally if, say, you know, his people captured an orc which revealed to him the fact that the one is returning and rising again. Um, He might start flipping out and acting in some uncharacteristic ways at that point, mightn't he? does seem that Thranduil... As uh, 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 as Tolkien is considering him here later on, uh, might have uh, might have had such thoughts. Look also what what else we learn about Thranduil. When a thousand years of the Third Age had passed and the shadow fell upon Greenwood the Great, the Sylvan Elves, ruled by Thranduil, uh, that was the synopsis of Christopher before it goes back in, retreated before it as it spread ever northward, until at last Thranduil established his realm uh, in the northeast of the forest and delved there a fortress and great halls underground. Oropher was of Sindarin origin, and no doubt Thranduil, his son, was following the example of King Thingol long before, in Doriath. Though his halls were not to be compared with Minagroth, he had not the arts, nor the wealth, nor the aid of the dwarfs. And compared with the elves of Doriath, his sylvan folk were rude and rustic. orofer had come along, had come among them with only a handful of Sindar, and they were soon merged with the sylvan elves, adopting their language and taking names of sylvan form and style. Thus they did this. They did deliberately. For they, and other similar adventurers, forgotten in legends or only briefly named, came from Doriath after its ruin, and had no desire to leave Middle-earth, nor to be merged with the other Sindar of Beleriand, dominated by the Noldoran exiles, for whom the folk of Doriath had no great love. They wished indeed to become sylvan folk, and to return, as they said, to the simple life natural to the elves before the invitation of the Valar had disturbed it. These passages are, I think, the closest Tolkien ever comes to really trying to point, to put a finger on the differences between the culture of the elves of Mirkwood and the culture of the other elves that we meet and that we know better from the Silmarillion tradition. Um, We get, you know, we learn a lot about the Noldor and we learn a lot about you know, King Thingol and his realm and stuff Um, but Thranduil remains a cipher through a lot of Tolkien's writing. Um, He is in The Hobbit, you know, where we get to see him most. He doesn't even have a name. Um, And he, uh, you know, all that we know about him is that he uh, really wishes he had a larger treasure hoard. Um, And by the time we get to The Published Hobbit, uh, that he is reluctant to shed blood in in a war for gold. But, um, this sense of the way in which the Sylvan Elves, the way in which the Elves of Mirkwood have truly gone native, um, you know, gone back to the way the Sylvan Elves were, those Elves who abandoned the journey early on <coughs> out to Valinor, who never even got so far as Beleriand, who want nothing more to do with this, who are r- truly isolationist, in a sense not only from other races, but even from other Elves, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> Thranduil's kingdom is not a kingdom like Goadriel's kingdom. Um his uh his king that is to say, you know, he, he is not a ruler like Goadriel is a ruler. What we see of Goadriel, especially as her story develops over time, as we saw in that chapter, is, you know, she is someone who is you know, who is so powerful and whose will is so strong that the the, the story of The lands, you know, the the, the stories of the ages form themselves around her. You know, she moves out of Linden and moves to Eregion. So, you know, a people grew up there, and the whole, you know, indirectly, the entire story of the Rings of Power emerged, like, just kind of emerged around Goadriel, you know, sort of came came into place um, around Goadriel. Um, That's not how it is with Randul and with the Elves of Mirkwood, right? They are hearkening back to the time before the call. They're not Avari, but they, they're they kind of acting like they were, right? Before the Valar called them to, uh, to go to Valinor in the first place. Um, and there does, I agree, um, Carolyn, it does sound like uh, almost a criticism of the Valar for removing them from Middle-earth. Um, before the Valar had disturbed it, the simple life natural to the Elves before the invitation of the Valar had disturbed it. Those other Elves, the Noldor, the the Caliquendi, the Elves of the Light, are not higher in an absolute sense, according to the Sylvan Elves. In the, uh, in this passage, they're different, but they're not higher. Those are Ruined Elves, so it doesn't go so far as that, right? But the, like the Sylvan folk. Believe that their life, theirs is the natural elven life, right? This is how elves were supposed to be. So please just let us get on with it, um, and not, you know, be considering all of these um, sort of larger political questions. Um, and uh, and and there's sort of something to be said about that. Notice they don't have any desire to leave Middle Earth. We're told that's an interesting statement, as it certainly contradicts what we see in Legolas. Um, now maybe. Um, it attempts to refocus our understanding of those passages about Legolas's desire for the sea, um, and his desire to pass into the west. Maybe this passage prompts us to see Legolas as kind of more deviant in that way, seeing him as hearkening back to the kin of his father, of the Sindar, um, and you know that this is uh, this is kind of sort of showing that Legolas is not, in fact. A perfect representative of um, his people he 's not a typical Merkwood elf maybe maybe that's the uh, maybe that 's how this passage informs our view of uh, of the Merkwood elves one of the just one of the general points that I would make about this passage is you know i 've long said in various contexts that we never really get to know the elves that we meet in The Hobbit. You know, the wood elves remain really kind of a mystery, I think. Um, We don't actually get to know them very well. This seems to be a moment where Tolkien is kind of trying to fill that gap. And notice, by the way, that he's doing other revision as well, in addition to telling us that bit about not wanting to leave Middle-earth. Notice that he, he has made a factual change. Um, there's something in this passage that contradicts what, is to- what we are told about the elves of Markwood in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and that is we are told that dwarves helped in the making of the elven king's halls. Um, Gimli, at least, states that, and Legolas doesn't correct him. Um... But um, we're told that he did not have the arts, nor the wealth, nor the aid of the dwarves in the making of his halls. Um, So that in fact, the elven king's halls are apparently significantly less. They're not to be compared with Menegroth. But um, they weren't even assisted by the dwarves. Which again, that's a contradiction. Um, He's changed that concept here. So we see him pushing the sylvan elves in a particular way uh, and um, and, and it's fascinating. Again, I think that it's, it's fascinating when you look back, um, sort of taking these things. There are so many times when Tolkien is filling in this stuff that it's, it's not just, I'm going to tell you the story behind this. It's not just, I'm going to give you more information. Um, but rather, I'm going to recontextualize things, which is going to open up the existing story in completely new ways. Right? Um, uh, it's going to make you think again about some of these things that you might have assumed or taken for granted or, uh, you know, I'm going to, if if you read this stuff and then go back and reread The Lord of the Rings, you'll see some things that you didn't see, and you'll think about some things in different ways that you weren't thinking about before. Um, And I, I think that that's a really fascinating thing that he does. I think it's um, it's uh, you know it's not just that he's going back and fiddling. It's not just that he's going back and making changes, um, but rather he is sort of deepening and enriching the story. And he always has a mind to the text that's there. That's there. He's always, as we've seen on several occasions, um, uh, you know, as as in the Galadriel passages doing a careful reading of his existing texts, right? Um, in the way that he works the ban of the Valar into Galadriel, is what I'm thinking of, right? That the text of the, the text that's in the Lord, her speeches in the Lord of the Rings don't explicitly say anything about a ban, and he does not seem to have thought of that at that point. But he, his later concept of the ban, his later theory about the ban, um, that later story goes back and fits in that because he's reading it so carefully goes back and fits within it and um, opens it up and enriches it in really interesting ways this is um, this is one of the places by the way where I would say that you can see it's it's not a kind of thing that people usually point to but when you think about how Tolkien's scholarship and his scholarly career enriched his writing this is one of the things one of the things that I would point to is the way in which um when revising when adding uh um you know when uh when embellishing he's always reading his own texts like a scholar like a medievalist would read received texts uh and trying to fit in variant versions and trying to uh to uh um not set it aside, not just shift things around, but come uh, to a richer understanding by holding on to that text and fitting it in with other things. Um, And I I find that process really fascinating, but of course I would, because I'm a a medievalist. Um, Anyway, I should let you go, uh, but thanks for joining me. I'm glad that uh, things went a good deal more smoothly today. Um, I will try to have recordings for both last night's class and today's class posted um, this evening uh, within the next few hours, so um, I look forward to uh, being able to have those up for you. Next week, we move forward, we do the Quest of Erebor next week. I know that uh, for various reasons that's a text that's been uh, alluded to a lot and been all, uh, on our minds it will be fun to read and talk about that together um, I will try not to go all riddles in the dark uh, on uh, that discussion but we will uh, we, we will see so anyway thanks very much for joining me and I will see you guys next Tuesday thanks very much bye